Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Sue Gore, who is Professor of Bioengineering and Therapeutic Sciences at, at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research is on understanding how the brain works, connecting molecules to systems. Welcome, Sue. Thanks for having me, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers uh, from 2011. Uh, uh, it's entitled Toward Molecular Genetic Dissection of Neural Circuits for emotional and motivational behaviors. Um, you say in this paper, um, you ask, how does the brain process the emotional meaning of sensory stimuli and in turn drive behavior? Studies in the mammalian systems have identified various brain regions and neurotransmitter systems that are critical for emotional and motivational behaviors and have implicated uh, their, environment, uh, their involvement in neuropsychiatric disorders, including anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, and addiction. Despite these significant advancements, you say the, the precise neural circuitry underlying emotional and motivational behaviors remains to be understood at molecular and cellular levels. So th this has always been the problem, right, for neuroscience. Um, Mm -hmm. The hardware seems uh, just a bit too complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, so what is your uh, sort of uh, focus uh, in this paper? Yeah, so, uh, so that is a review paper we wrote, um, yeah, all, uh, almost uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. So, um, so I'm very interested in, you know, in the brain as ever since I um, got my PhD. So I always wonder, you know, how does a brain actually um, process, um, especially emotional information? So yeah. like, how do we, um, you know, certain, certain sensory stimuli will make us, right? For example, if we see an old friend uh, or if we're really hungry and then see, um, you know, a delicious hamburger, right? So we will have, you know, we'll have feel really happy, right? So, so how does this type of, certain type of sensory stimuli uh, can elicit, you know, emotional information 
uh, yeah. emotional feelings in, in, inside ourselves, right? So, and whereas some other sensory information is pretty much neutral, right? Right. No, um, it, it doesn't really uh, trigger uh, a lot of um, the deep emotions. So, so I, I'm really curious in understanding um, what differentiate these sensory stimuli. What makes them, you know, tick our brain in a different way? Yeah, and that is a that is truly complex, right? So, um, you know, we make some advancements in artificial intelligence, and um, when we think about machines. Uh, it, it tends to be rather prescriptive. So we have inputs and outputs. Um, but when we think about emotions, um, that is a very, very complex phenomenon, right? Um, as you say uh, in the introduction here, a uh, lot, of, lot of brain areas get, uh, get involved in this process. So, so really understanding uh, how, how it works is really uh, uh, really challenging, I would think. Yes, yeah, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. So, um, you know, speaking of um, AI, so I, I remember once I, I watched um, a, a, a TV show like on an airplane. So they were talking about these robots, right? So how the robots can um, uh, perform tasks given, right? Yeah. However, they, they don't, Currently, at least, can sense the emotional, you know, just justice or, or things like that, right? So, 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 how do you program a robot to be, you know, compassionate, right, and and then be able to have this type of emotions? Right now, is um, I don't think it's possible. Um, speaking of um, the complexity, yeah, absolutely, you're right. You know, our our brain is um, thinking about human brain, for example, is extremely complex. So that's why we um, really, you know, wanted to study a simpler brain, uh, if you will. Uh, so yeah. that is the, the zebrafish brain that, that, that our lab is focused on. Yeah. yeah, so the human brain has 100 billion neurons um, with like trillions of connections, uh, whereas the, the little tiny zebrafish brain has um, many orders of magnitude fewer neurons. Yet these creatures, they can display um, you know, a lot of the same type of uh, needs that, that we have. For example, they need to avoid predators or uh, they need to seek food as a reward, right? So, so these type of, um, you know, this very basic emotional um, elements are, are preserved in, in the simpler brains like zebrafish. Yeah, that, that is, that's really interesting. So just to, just to get the magnitude of this, Sue, so, the human brain, uh, 10 to the power 11 neurons, uh, 10 to the power 15 um, mm -hmm. connections approximately, right? Yes. Um, whereas a zebrafish, uh, you said 100,000, so 10 to the 5. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's about six orders of magnitude less, uh, mm -hmm. the, sort of the quantity of neurons uh, in the brain, six orders of magnitude less. But but uh, you're saying uh, uh, even in that that type of a scale, we are seeing emotions. Yes, yes. So we have been uh, studying these um, lava zebrafish brain, right? So there, uh, so it's a lava zebrafish brain have about a hundred thousand neurons, um, and these uh, they also have a transparent brain, which is really great for um, uh, imaging 
purposes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so so we we actually started with a very um, simple observation. So when we put this tiny little lava zebra fish right in the behavior chamber, and then we um, happen to put half of the chamber right half one side of the chamber um, to have a more illuminated right the other half of the chamber is less illuminated it's dark right so one side is light the other side is dark and then when we put these little zebra fish in there yeah. we can we can see that they they show a distinct preference for the light side uh, yeah so so they they would avoid the dark side you can even see them you know seem to be very, you know, a very, a very choice making like, like process. So they, they would, you know, obviously all creatures are very, you know, like to explore, right? If they have the opportunity, they like to, you know, go around the entire place. Right. Um, but, but, but these lava zebra fish uh, in general, right? They would go to the border between the light side and the dark side. And then you will see them actually turn away from, you know, to avoid the dark side. Is so, it, uh, go ahead. Uh, so is it is it instinctual or is it emotional? For instance, um, you know, if the if the light uh, the the more lighted side gives the gives the zebrafish a higher chance of seeing the predator earlier, take evasive actions. Um, is it is it sort of instinctual or is it, you think they are actually making conscious decisions? Yeah, Gil, that's a really, really great question. So, um, so I, I, I'm not sure whether, um, you know, uh, whether the fish uh, have consciousness, right? Uh, or, or I, I don't know uh, whether they do or they, they don't, right? So, uh, so this behavior definitely is considered, uh, we call it an innate behavior. So in the way that they, they seem like they know this is what they, they are supposed to do. It's like, it's not like, you know, learned from, from some, somewhere. Uh, or from someone, yeah. So whether it's emotional or not, so I, I'm not sure whether um, emotional behavior has to be uh, conscious, you know, be conscious, right? So, so we often think that uh, um, emotions are um, are sort of deep within, like subcortical controlled, right? So, so more have this this sort of below conscious um, um, uh, level of mm -hmm. of operation. Um, but 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 I I don't know exactly how it works in humans. But we do believe that this behavior is not a simple reflex in in, in lava zebrafish. So it yeah. it involves um, processes um, and the neurotransmitter um, types that are really you know that uh, like can modulate a, a a circuit. So rather than just the sensory motor, direct sensory motor. Um, do, do we see the, the behavior? Uh, in all stages of the stages of the zebrafish's development, right from the beginning, or uh, uh, in other words, uh, is there any information that tells us it's a learned behavior in some way? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, so we believe that the lava zebrafish. Um, so we do this behavior when they are just about five or six days old, right? So they are they're just like um, you know very young, and then we usually house them. Uh, individually, right? So, so they, they, they don't really have opportunity to learn uh, from others um, in terms of, of uh, um, performing this behavior. So, so we, we think this behavior is um, unlearned 
it's so they're they're born to to have this behavior. So that's the sort of innate behavior. However, this behavior is completely modifiable by their experience. So, so if we sort of introduce them right into this light dark chamber uh, repeatedly, right, and we can clearly see that um, they grow uh, less and less uh, sort of quote afraid of the dark side. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, do, um, is there any connection to the visual systems? Um, you know, uh, the, the preference for the the more lighted side is it because sensitivity to to the eye to the visual systems in any way or uh, or that that is not really really there that's a, that's a really great question so so definitely this behavior requires an intact uh, vision so yeah. if we have for example lava zebrafish that have uh, that are vision uh, visually impaired uh, and then they will not perform this um, this behavior very well. Yeah, so so vision is required for them to actually make a, a clear um, choice here. Um, so whether this behavior is entirely um, driven by like visual sensitivity only, uh, I, I don't I don't think so because you know what's really interesting is we have been um, you know treating these lava zebra fish with uh, drugs. Um, yeah for example, commonly used anxiolytic drugs uh, in humans, uh, like uh, benzodiazepine, for example, uh, uh, which is a GABA um, agonist, yeah. um, or the buspiron, which is believed to act uh, through serotonin uh, system. So both type of these drugs can significantly decrease their dark avoidance behavior. So yeah, suggesting this behavior is maybe you know, fear or anxiety related in, in this very simple organism. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So uh, you have a term here, a uh, conditioned place preference, CPP. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you say CPP behaviors have been widely observed in rodent models in the context of studying drug abuse and addiction. So what exactly is CPP? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So CPP stands for conditioned place preference behavior. Yeah. So in this behavior, this behavior CPP is different from what I just um, uh, talked with you about, which is the, the innate light dark uh, innate preference behavior, right? So CPP is actually a learned behavior. So it's conditioned place preference. So uh, the way how it works is that um, so you would um, first um, introduce an uh, animal into a, a behavior chamber, right, that uh, potentially have like two or three distinct compartments. Mm -hmm. And then initially the animal will show no preference for, for uh, those compartments, right? So they have like a, a, a neutral preference, equal yeah. preference. And then what you do is you compare uh, the animal with one particular compartment, right? So let's call it like the left compartment, right? Yeah. With with drugs, for example, or anything that's really uh, rewarding, for example, right? So so then over time, uh, so the animal will uh, develop a preference for the left chamber, right? right? So and then you know, sometime later, maybe two days or three days later, right? Then you reintroduce animal into this chamber, right? At, at this time, without any rewarding uh, stimuli on board, right? So just just the animal and the chamber, right? And then you measure its preference. So now, if the animal has learned, right, the left 
the left chamber, for example, predicts right where where it, it gets the reward before, right? So that now it, it basically predicts the where the reward will be. Then you will find that animal will spend a lot more time on the left chamber. So now that we can say, aha, you know, this animal has has learned, right? Has has uh, you know developed this condition place preference. Yeah. Yeah, so so that is that is the learned behavior. So going back to the zebra fish um, experiment, um, you say that so you do this very early, so it is not a learned behavior. Hundred uh, k neurons, um, you know, from a mechanistic perspective, we have deep learning networks that are much much bigger than hundred uh, k uh, neurons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I'm just thinking that, so, so suppose, you know, obviously, uh, it's not this simplistic, but, you know, so suppose we take a, a deep neural ne- network and we train that, uh, to, to dark images and light images, and it will be able to figure, you know, it will be able to differentiate between the two mechanistically pretty, mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Um, now the, the zebra fish. Um, you say that the larva uh, zebrafish, uh, so it's very early in its uh, progression. So it's almost like the 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 brain is coming coming with some preloaded uh, preloaded software like an operating system. Um, mm. Yeah, with, with, you know, with certain. Uh, I'm, I'm just making a statement so you can. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a really interesting comparison. Yeah, so um, so whether the lava zebra fish um, have preloaded software, quote yeah. software, right, that, that, that guides their behavior uh, already yeah. uh, before sort of any learning um, uh, is taking place. I, I, I think that's probably, that is the case, you know, because these, these little creatures, right, if we think about uh, their... Um, uh, you know, living conditions in the wild, right? Yeah. So they 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 are faced with a lot of challenges, right? So their big fish potentially will um, you know eat them, right? And and then they also need to you know survive and need to find food, right? So so they I think they they need to be preloaded with with a lot of softwares, otherwise the species probably um, will, will will have gone extinct. Yeah. And so it's clearly uh, from a selection perspective, evolutionarily from a selection perspective, whoever, uh, whoever collected good software, uh, were able to pass that on and over time. And so when you're born, you already have um, some level of uh, software uh, in the brain. Uh, now there is a different. Is there a difference between what we think about as instincts and this type of behavior, or you don't see a difference? Yeah. Um, so I usually like to call this type of behavior uh, innate behavior, right? So or, or sometimes we also call it like a in- instinctive behavior. Yeah. Um, but but that is different from uh, like a reflex behaviors, right? So, so reflex, for example, you know, like the knee, knee jerk reflex, like if you hit your kneecap, like your, your knee will automatically jerk, right? So that is a very simple reflex. So it basically uh, go directly from sensory, right, to motor. Yeah. So there's, there's not much information processing in between, right? So it, you, you, 
It doesn't even get to the brain, I think, right? That's right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So you, we have peripheral reflex, right? Peripheral uh, reflex behaviors. Um, yeah, it doesn't even need need the brain, right? So it's probably just very local, right? Yeah. Uh, so whereas instinctive behaviors is different from reflex. Um, so instinctive behavior meaning that you you know somehow you you don't have to be taught right to 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 do certain things, right. and yet some of these things could be a, a complex um, procedure. You know it, you know like uh, it doesn't have to be uh, like a reflex behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was there any sort of experiment so that, uh, so we know this is their, you know, sort of um, uh, expected mode of operation. Is there an experiment where um, when, you know, if you, if you were to give some sort of negative reinforcement for the light side, lighter side, light, light, more lighted side, mm -hmm. uh, can you reprogram uh, the zebrafish to start to like the darker side over time? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, we have not done that yet, but we have we have basically um, observed uh, the other way around. Is basically if we leave the animal right lava zebrafish in the chamber for a longer time, right? So and then they would, uh, you know, any creatures are naturally very uh, likes to explore, right? So so we think that you know they 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 wanted to explore the entire chamber entire arena hmm. however they've they're afraid to do so on the dark side right initially but still sometimes they will take quick excursion into the dark side and quickly come back to the light <laughs> side right so so initially initially they we, we find that they 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 found dark side to be um you know very very aversive right but yeah. as time goes right if we let them you know be in the chamber for a longer time and then they will gradually learn that the dark side is not as scary <laughs> as they initially thought, right? So, so then they go, they, they can actually gradually spend more time uh, uh, on the dark side. So this already, um, you know, it's kind of like experience dependent learning uh, is already happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, humans are sort of the same, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. sort of, uh, I think we have an uh, innate uh, or instinctual uh, aversion to darkness, and mm -hmm. uh, over time um, we get used to it. Uh, <laughs> as we, mm -hmm. um, you see in this review article, so that um, in the conclusions you see some implications for human neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, you say for zebrafish, the world is a very different place from the one that we experience, despite these differences the basic needs that they have for feeding, sheltering, and reproduction are strikingly similar. Um, so, so how does, how does this, um, what is the connection you see to the, the human neuropsychiatric disorders in this context? Yes, yeah, so, um, so we, we think that, um, so this uh, dark avoidance behavior, right, uh, potentially um, are fear and anxiety related, right? in zebrafish. Um, so the, the, you know, it's sort of uh, a balance between uh, how much they, they want to explore, right? Yeah. And versus how much they want to seek safety, right? Um, so I think with anxiety disorders, usually um, it's characterized as, um, you know, having excessive fear, right? 
or uncontrollable fear of, of things that are potentially not as uh, fearful, right? So, so we believe that the connection with human um, psychiatric disorders um, are, are potentially in, in the arena of uh, anxiety-like disorders or depression. Um, yeah, so, and, and as, yeah, go, go ahead. And so um, if, the, if the zebrafish is going to the dark side, uh, mechanistically, there are some neurons firing and the net effect uh, of those neurons firing is, is sort of sort of anxiety and avoidance uh, of that uh, of that morality. And you're saying uh, in humans, when we think about depression, uh, other anxiety type disorders, uh, it's sort of so there, there's a set of neurons firing in, in some uh, some ways. And if you can identify what might be happening, there might be some way to intervene. Is that possible? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly uh, that, that we're uh, sort of working on these yeah. days in the lab. Yeah. So so we have found that this one type of neurons um, that, that we're um, very actively studying these days is called the uh, corticotrophin releasing factor. Yeah. neurons, right? CRF neurons. Um, so these neurons, um, actually, exactly as you, you just described, um, is they're more active uh, when the fish is on the dark side. Mm. So like these neurons gets activated, right? And, and as you know, probably uh, these neurons, uh, CRF neurons, is the, is the central commander in, in our brain yeah. that, that will activate the, the, the HPA axis, right? Which is the, the, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. That's the, the, the stress axis in, in humans. Yeah. So, um, so it's quite remarkable to, you know, to see that the, this regulation um, of CR, by CRF neurons, right, is so conserved across evolution, you know, mm -hmm. from zebrafish to humans. Um, and the CRF neurons have been really uh, implicated in, in human anxiety, uh, as well as depressive disorders. Yeah. So this, yeah, this abnormal activation of this, this um, stress axis. Yeah, I, the, the more I uh, I um, hear about these things, so the 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 more I'm puzzled how the brain even works. I mean, it, <laughs> it seems, it seems uh, so finely balanced at the knife edge that uh, it, it doesn't really take much uh, to go in a direction that you know uh, that has difficulties, right? So. Um, uh, and so, so you're saying anxiety as sort of a foundational issue uh, from a neuroscience perspective uh, might might lead to a variety of. You mentioned depression, addiction, schizophrenia here. Um, mm -hmm. They all. Uh, you, you are saying fundamentally they are sort of related in some ways. Um. Um. Not uh, well, well, not necessarily um, like all these these different psychiatric disorders. Not necessarily they are all like uh, uh, closely related, right? But they they are definitely um, you know share something in common. So that is um, they are they are, can be uh, affected by both genetic and environmental factors, right? So like uh, genes play a role, but also um, the environment plays a very important role as well. 
in, in shaping these disorders. So, so how are they uh, related? I think uh, um, it is still yet to be understood, right? So I think human genetic studies um, these days have discovered uh, quite a lot of, um, you know, genetic variants that are associated with these different disorders, right? And some, some variants actually, um, you know, target uh, the same genes across different disorders. For example, um, um, uh, for example, uh, schizophrenia um, and autism, for example, you know, they share, um, you know, common genetic uh, factors. Yeah, so, so they could be related um, in some ways. But the activity that we see in the brain is so widespread. Uh, are we are we really able to use uh, brain uh, imaging as a diagnostic uh, method for any anyone any sort of disease identification? Yeah, um, so I think that it, it will be quite challenging, right? Yeah. So as, exactly as you said, you know, the the the, the neural activities are, are widespread, right? And also uh, circuitries are very distributed in our brain, right? So we, we don't find like, you know, this region is specific for this type of disease, right? So so the, all of our behaviors are really um, controlled by very distributed uh, circuits. So brain imaging will uh, help, right? Um, you know, potentially understand certain aspects of the disease. But however, um, the human brain imaging right now, you know, is, is very, uh, is is not possible to achieve the cellular resolution, right? Yeah. Uh, that that will allow us to really understand what's going on in the brain. Um, so zebrafish, on the other hand, uh, allows us to do uh, whole brain imaging yeah. at cellular resolution. Yeah. So that's something that's really um, very exciting uh, to look at um, to be able to link brain-wide activity and connectivity changes to certain, for example, genetic. Uh, alteration in zebrafish. Right, right. So, so the, the kind of the spatial uh, detail is is really difficult. Uh, do we see um, any differences in the time dimension? Uh, how how things change? Um, again, I, I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking humans, and I'm thinking um, you know neuropsychiatric diseases. Is there any sort of temporal um, changes that might be diagnostic? Mm -hmm. uh, are you talking about in the same individual over time? In the images. So, uh, um, you know, going back to zebrafish, since you're doing the whole brain imaging there, are we learning anything, you know, in terms of uh, how the neurons are firing and how, how they're synchronized, how they change over time? Any of those gives us any... Any indications? Yes, yeah. So uh, with, re with respect to zebrafish imaging, yeah, we can definitely uh, look at um, the temporal dynamics of the, of the brain activity yeah. at cellular resolution. So, so for example, um, uh, one can um, image the, the zebrafish brain activity, right? And then one can add a particular drug to the, to the zebrafish, right? To, to the medium, and then you can observe how the activity might change, you know, for example, in response to an anxiolytic compound, right, or an anxiogenic compound, you can see how the brain activity now changes, right? Yeah. And, and then we can, um, uh, that can help us understand how these, these drugs potentially, 
you know, alter brand-wide uh, activity and connectivity. So you can you can potentially uh, make them bolder, right? Through through drugs, you know, the the zebrafish fearing the dark side of the chamber, uh, given some some agent, uh, could could be less fearful. Yes, yeah, that that's really interesting thought, Gail. Yes, uh, that's definitely uh, definitely a, a possibility. Um, so there are certain drugs uh, that could affect, for example, serotonin system, right? It could make could definitely make uh, you know them become more bold uh, and more more um, you know aggressive potentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it's interesting also to 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 mention that uh, you know this um, this dark avoidance behavior, right? It's actually quite variable across the population. Mm. So, so I think that that's something uh, uh, that we potentially will talk about a little bit later is that we, we don't see everyone behaves exactly the same, you know? Right. So some individuals are, seem to be a lot bolder than yeah. others. Yeah. And so we see the spectrum of behavior in the population that, that we're really fascinated with right now is to understand, you know, how does evolution shape this, this behavior differences across individuals. Yeah, so, so let's let's talk about that. Um, so so yeah, uh, so you have another paper identification of brain center whose uh, activity discriminates the choice behavior in zebrafish. Uh, is that the one you're talking about, where you're seeing a sort of a variation? Yeah, that that paper also we actually uh, make use of this. Um, Sort of behavior differences to try yeah. to identify a brand region uh, that's that's responsible for for the choice behavior. Uh, although I want to point out that the, this the paper that you just mentioned um, is actually relates to adult behavior, mm. right? So so very interestingly in zebrafish, um, their light dark preference behavior actually flips uh, when they become adults. Mm. So when they're young, right, like when they're lava stage they uh, avoid dark side. But when they are older, <laughs> it, as adults, they avoid the light side. So there's a complete switch in terms of their light dark preference. Wow, yeah. Yeah, so zebrafish, um, you know, it's easier to study. Do we see this sort of, be I mean, humans appear to have something similar. <laughs> uh, do we do we see the this pattern in other biological systems? Yes, absolutely. You know, this light dark preference behavior actually is conserved across uh, species, uh, from flies, you know, all the way to mammals. Yeah. Um, so I think this behavior, the reason that it's so uh, conserved, is because you know we are all Earthlings, right? So we all live on on this planet where it has distinct light and dark cycles right that the sort of the circadian rhythms yeah. uh, allow us to you know be active in the light and then you know sort of go to sleep at night right, right. and there's also just basically light dark have a lot of meanings to 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 all creatures on earth yeah so so it's very conserved in fact even in drosophila right in, in the fruit fly drosophila they also have very distinct light dark preference behavior that is also flips you know when they're young versus when they're adults we will take a we'll take a quick break so when we come back uh, we'll talk more about this uh, as well as sort of the hereditary aspects uh, that uh, we can probably learn something from as well mm -hmm. great thank you
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com. Hi, so, so we are back. Um, we were talking about uh, zebrafish, um, a model that you use to look at uh, look at the brain uh, because obviously they provide some interesting ways to uh, to get the data, uh, and it is a lot simpler than human brains. Uh, but there are certain behaviors that appear to be uh, appear to be similar. Uh, in the case of the zebrafish, the the young Zebrafish uh, seems to have a, a fear of dark places, just like humans. Uh, and as they grow up, they appear to appear to like it and uh, and have an aversion to the lighter side. Um, yeah, one of the hypotheses you have, if I understand it, so is that um, the the anxiety is sort of the the reason. Uh, why this might happen. You have another paper uh, in 2016. You're looking at sort of the identification of environmental stressors and validation of light preferences as a measure of anxiety in larval zebrafish. Uh, and you look at variety of stressors, um, stress uh, uh, stimuli such as heat, cold, ultraviolet, mechanical disturbance, and social isolation. Um, uh, so, so what do you find here in this in the study? Yes, um, yes. So, so in that study, we um, we're, we're curious to know, um, you know, whether the behavior, this this uh, light dark preference behavior in lava zebrafish, right, yeah. are, are indeed um, and sort of fear and anxiety related, right? So, so previously, uh, we and others have shown that you know anxiolytic drugs, right, can modify this behavior. Uh, which which sort of um, provide uh, some pharmacological uh, evidence that this behavior uh, may be anxiety related, right? So in this particular study, we kind of wanted to know, um, you know, uh, sort of on the flip side, you know, can we make this behavior worse, right? By, uh, you know, treat the lava zebrafish with anxiogenic stimuli mm. right, or stressors in this case. So if, if, if it does, you know, modify the behavior, then we can, you know, be more confident that this behavior is um, somehow anxiety and fear anxiety related. Yeah, so that, that's sort of that what this paper, uh, this simple paper about. Okay, mm-hmm. and so, so, so what you find is that these, these stressors actually make the behavior more pronounced? Is that what you find? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that's exactly what we found. So we found that when we um, you know, heat deeper fish up, right, you know, basically putting them in a, a, a hotter, hotter water than, than they usually uh, like, and, they'll, and then we introduce them into this light, dark chamber, and they will show much more pronounced uh, dark avoidance behavior. And the same goes with cold. You know, when we like put this lava zebrafish in a colder water, right, than what they usually desire, and then then test the behavior. Uh, it also the, the avoidance behavior becomes more pronounced, um, and uh, among some other stimuli that we also have tested as well. So, so, 
so so this experiment, uh, you know, it, uh, one one in one thing we, we want to um, determine is is whether the behavior is anxiety related. Another thing is we want to find other stimuli yeah. uh, that that can enhance this behavior, and then try to understand how this stimuli actually modify the circuit hmm. that leads to enhanced behavior. Yeah. Yeah. It's always difficult to extrapolate from zebrafish to human, um, mm -hmm. but um, does it have some implications for humans uh, as well? Um, so in the case of the human, I think environmental stressors, there is a whole plethora of environmental stressors, um, you know, from chemicals to, to, to you know, a variety of things, right? So. Do you think those stressors um, could have an impact on the neuropsychiatric diseases that humans have? Oh, um, yeah. So I think definitely, you know, a lot of these um, human um, and psychiatric diseases are, they have a, a significant environmental contributions. Um, so um, chemicals being, being one possibility and also early life stress uh, being another possibility, right? So a lot of these um, work with genes, um, you know, that, that could precipitate um, uh, phenotypes or symptoms in human, in, in the vulnerable uh, humans, human beings, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it obviously has implications for healthcare more broadly. So, you know, the, our general tendency is to treat uh, after a disease shows up. Um, but it is much less costly and, and much more effective if you can intervene uh, in a preventative fashion, right? Um, and uh, perhaps we are beginning to do that on the physical side, but it uh, doesn't look like we have done a lot on the, uh, on the mental uh, side, uh, or mental disease side, in terms of proactive interventions early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, uh, um, you know, um, I guess it, it, it's it's challenging in a way, right? So in order to um, prevent or intervene, uh, we have to be able to recognize uh, some, you know, telltale signs early on, yeah. right? Uh, so that we can identify the sort of the, the, the sensitive or the vulnerable um, populations, right? Yeah. Um, but but I don't you know I'm I'm not a um, you know doctor human doctor <laughs> so um, per se so I'm not sure how um, how um, that uh, area has been developed in terms of uh, early di early diagnosis right yeah of, of psychiatric vulnerabilities yeah yeah I mean, I mean you know obviously um, you know it's very difficult to extrapolate but what you're finding here is that. Um, there is a behavior that is potentially driven by anxiety. And if, if there are environmental stressors present that increases uh, anxiety, that, that behavior is amplified. Um, and then obviously in a simple system like, like zebrafish, it, it seems to make intuitive sense, um, right? So, the, the, so could you could you extend these types of things to let's say a, a mouse model or something like that to a to a bigger system? Yeah, I think it's definitely um, you know I think these type of studies uh, have been uh, carried out in like a, a mammalian 
models such as mice and rats, right? So, uh, but each system have its own strengths and, and the sort of limitations as well. Um, so the the, uh, the the zebrafish system, you know, the limitation being uh, it's, you know, even though it's a vertebrate, right? It's not a mammal. Uh, so in a, in a way that it's um, less uh, close to humans, right? Uh, but zebrafish have a lot of strengths that the rodent systems, um, you know, don't have. For example, the, the brain, you know, the rodent brain is very complex, uh, much more complex than the lava zebrafish brain that we are studying, right? So the simple uh, systems here offers actually a, a tremendous advantage to be able to un really understand uh, the behavior and the circuitry uh, at a, a cellular and molecular uh, levels. Um, so, so the, I think that's the reason I think uh, what, what, uh, we use zebrafish and, and that's what we think zebrafish can contribute uh, to, the, uh, to, 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 to this question. And also the zebrafish is very um, prolific. So we can get lots, lots of these, um, these uh, little fishes um, for experiments. Yeah, so we could do a lot of high throughput behavior phenotyping and then genotyping experiments. Yeah, yeah, and and the objective function in the brain is is somewhat simpler too. I would imagine um, food predator, uh, and there are too many factors that. So the the noise you have when you image the brain uh, is potentially lower too, right? In the zebrafish, potentially, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think that you know that in general the you know the circuitry is is. Um... Is probably simpler. I, I would say, you know, for example, um, uh, uh, you know, let's just take this particular um, nuclei in the in the vertebrate brain uh, as example, right? So uh, it's there's a nuclei called locus cerealis. Um, so it's a noradrenergic center in the brain, right? So it's in in both in all vertebrate brains. Um, so in zebrafish. Uh, so this uh, locus cerealis, noradrenergic center, only has three to ten neurons, whereas in um, mammals, it's probably at least a thousandfold more, if not even more, right? So, so it just you know the complexity um, is definitely um, daunting, yeah. So in, in the in the mammalian brains, yeah. So, so more broadly, Sue, I know that you do a lot of work in this area. More broadly, are we finding that? Um, you can replicate complex behaviors um, and complex objective functions with, you know, uh, a very few number of neurons. Um, is, that, is that statement true? I mean, you know, a, a few hundred thousand neurons, entire brain of a zebrafish and you're saying certain aspects of that brain is actually few neurons that is that is making the decisions. It seems to me that that is sort of a, a different feel uh, when we think about the brain as so complex, right? Uh, perhaps the brain is not that complex, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that, that's a very interesting thought. Um... So I, I think, you know, even when we look at 100,000 neurons, we, we, we are already faced with a quite daunting challenge uh, to try to understand how these 100,000 neurons um, are talking to one another. Um, you know, because when we perform uh, neuroactivity imaging, for example, we, we just see, you know, 
cells here, you know, like like fireworks, like go, goes off here and goes off there, right? And then we, we have tried to uh, make sense of what, what this, um, you know, this firing activity uh, is all about. Uh, um, yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, I think brain scaled up, right, as, as we, uh, you know, as uh, species have evolved on Earth, right? So, so there must be, um, you know, a lot of um, added on uh, functions, right? So, for example, you know, human brain can do um, so much more, right, than a zebrafish brain um, can do, right? But a zebrafish brain will allow us to really look at some, um, some, some, um, tractable um, behaviors in this case you know we're interested in this uh, in this choice behavior um, how how a simpler brain actually make decisions uh, make choices right so once we can understand a simpler brain uh, in a greater detail right at, at cellular molecule levels yeah. then you know it will provide potentially a framework or maybe potentially some type of um, theoretical framework or principles that will help us understand you know, this enormously complex brain like our like our own yeah <laughs> yeah the, the the brain appears to be highly optimized you know it, it is dealing with some very very harsh constraints in terms of space in terms of power and so so how the brain works is, is quite different from um, you know, where the AI research is heading. Um, you know, AI research is going in the direction of let's let's throw more silicon at the problem and mm -hmm. uh, if you will get a better answer. Uh, the, the brain is almost exactly the opposite. Um, it, it is really about optimization and resource constraint uh, rather than throwing more resources at the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I agree. Yeah, I think the brain is extremely, um, extremely efficient. Uh, so it's called, um, I think this, um, uh, it's co a complex, uh, a complex network, right? Small world uh, network, uh, the human brain, all, all, as, a matter, as a matter of fact, um, all brains actually yeah. Yeah, follow this uh, small, small world network um, rules. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have another paper, uh, 2017, Heritable Natural Variation of an Anxiety-like Behavior in Larval Zebrafish. Uh, and so, so, so you went um, into, uh, into this looking at if you can actually see hereditary, um, uh, hereditary aspects to this anxiety-like behavior in zebrafish. Did you find it? Yeah. So yeah, let me tell you. Let me give you a little bit uh, introduction yeah. about about what this uh, this work is about, right? So 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 far uh, we have discussed this uh, light dark preference behavior, right, in lava zebrafish, and uh, you know in general we see lava zebrafish avoid dark, right? So they find dark side to be um, you know aversive, right? However. Uh, so that's that's on average, right? So usually we do a behavior analysis on like twenty to you know fifty individuals, right? And then we measure, uh, sort of, we develop a preference index, right? So basically, how much time they spend in the light side versus dark side, right? And then we just you know develop an index, subtract uh, the percent time in the light side minus the you know, percent time in the dark side, right? Sure. And then we average them, right? So then we basically get this population average, right? Which suggests that uh, lava zebrafish um, find dark side aversive, right? 
have dark avoidance behavior. However, when we look at on the individual level, right, we see quite, quite um, amazing phenomenon, um, if you will. So you can see some individuals, right? They are extremely dark aversive. So meaning that, you know, during the entire behavior recording period, they never even, you know, cross the, the boundary ever once. They spend all their time avoiding dark side, right? And then we also see on the other end of the spectrum, individuals who doesn't seem to even care about, you know, light or dark side. They just freely explore both sides as if they have no fear, as if they're just, you know, completely very bold, right? So we see this, this distribution across the population. So this reminds me of, you know, you know, behavior spectrum, right? Even in humans, right? Like, you know, we, we have some very brave, you know, human beings, right? We also have some very, um, you know, fearful, you know, scared, scared human beings, right? So, so the same is happening in fish, seems like. You know, so that, that really uh, interested me. You know, I wanted to understand what, you know, what is this, what determines these this differences, right? So one question, obviously, is, is it genetic, right? Or is it purely non-genetic, right? right? So in order to, to address that question, uh, the experiment that we did is to basically selectively breed, breed you know, individuals, right? Who are extremely exploratory, right? Uh, and then selectively breed the individuals who are extremely risk aversive, right? Never go to the dark side, right? And then we look at their, their babies, uh, their next generation. Yeah. So basically we ask, you know, is this bold, very bold individuals, do they also give, right, give you know, next generation also very bold, right? Mm -hmm. And then the ones that are really risk aversive, dark aversive, uh, do they give individuals that are, you know, also risk aversive and dark aversive, right? So, so and then, and then our answer is yes, you know, that we did this, uh, we discovered there is genetic um, components to, to this behavior differences across the population. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so you described in this paper, you have sort of three buckets, medium dark aversion, strong dark aversion, and variable. Mm -hmm. Yes, go ahead. And and so you so you basically go back and and breed uh, the um, the members in those buckets and then look at the next generation if there's if they're showing sort of similar characteristics, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And yes. Yeah. I think there is there's a strong correlation. So 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 you would conclude that there is a there is a strong genetic component to our conversion. Yes, um, I, I I don't know how strong it is, but it's yeah. it's it's completely detectable, right? We can detect uh, you know heritability of these behavior uh, variations. Yeah. yeah. So suggesting there are genetic contributions. Um, and and the neuropsychiatric diseases, obviously, there are there are a whole spectrum of those diseases. My understanding is that there is also a fairly strong genetic component there, right, in humans. Yes. Yes, uh, I, I think so. Uh, so it, it, it varies from disease to disease, right? Um, but but uh, definitely they're, they're uh, very detectable uh, genetic contributions, yeah, to like schizophrenia, to uh, anxiety disorders, and so on, yeah. Yeah, and, and 
um, it, it's probably too too early, and they, you know, more studies and and maybe uh, different models. But would you say um, so? Is anxiety sort of the parameter that you can look at if you titrate up and titrate down anxiety? You can you can then predict what the behavior, uh, the, the changes in behaviors might be. Are we are we there for zebrafish? In other words, you did this in one study where you have this environmental stressors and you showed that the higher the environmental stressors, the more amplified the, the behavior is, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, and then so, but, but we don't know, we cannot say if environmental stressors, the ones that you use like heat and cold, uh, um, lead to anxiety, but uh, are there more direct ways you can increase the anxiety of the zebrafish? And, and 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 try to answer the question: Is it anxiety that is leading to this behavior? Mm, I see. Okay. So um, yeah. So so anxiety is is basically quite loaded term, right? Yeah. So um, so how um, how do we directly increase anxiety? I mean, it's not. I mean, anxiety is actually read read out as a behavior here, right? Yeah. Because because you know in animals in, in all animals, right? We, we cannot directly ask them, right? How anxious do you feel, right? Because in humans we can, right? We can just talk to the person and then say, you know, how how do you feel, right? And then and then the person will, will be able to tell us, right? Right. But but we we cannot communicate with animals, so so the only way we can read out sort of their their anxiety level quote, right, is through is through behavior. Um, uh, monitoring, right? So, uh, so the way that we can, you know, how do we change their, um, their directly change their anxiety um, is, is, is very difficult to, to know, right? So, so the, the way that we, we have been doing is basically, uh, you know, using, for example, drugs, right, that we known to alter anxiety in humans, yeah. right? Or, or stressors that we kind of know that, you know, what will, will likely to be, um, you know, anxiogenic, right? right? So, so we, we kind of just sort of uh, still using this type of um, uh, uh, this type of approaches, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a complex question. So, since you're finding a genetic component, um, you know, I was wondering if there there is again some correlations to the the visual systems uh, and other aspects that lead to um, lead to this behavior. But on the other hand. Since you're demonstrating that environmental stressors amplify the behavior, that is sort of indicative of of the anxiety aspect, right? I mean, I, that is probably the best you could do to answer that question. Yeah, so I think you bring out a really, really important point is, you know, what, for example, what is really underlining, right, these differences in individuals' behavior, right? Because, because I, I, as I just, uh, you know, told you that, across the population, we can see some individuals that are extremely, seem to be extremely, uh, you know, indifferent, right, to the light and dark side. And there are some individuals who are extremely uh, dark aversive, right? Yeah. So, so what, what's the genetics that underlie these behavior differences? Um, is something that we're extremely interested in finding out, right? So as you mentioned, one possibility could simply be, you know, they, they're somehow their visual system is different, right? Mm. So allows them to somehow, you know, see the 
the the the the behavior chamber differently, right? Right. Whereas whereas everything else in inside their brain is the same, identical, right? I mean, it, it is hard to imagine that this this would be the case. Uh, however, we cannot exclude that possibility at this point. Yeah. Um. Right. So. Um. Because when we look at these these individuals, right, they don't look different. You know, the, in in terms of just looking at their morphology, right, their eyes look perfect. Yeah. You know, they, they they seem like to be able to find food perfectly, <laughs> so they, they don't have problems. You know, finding food, right, which suggests that that their visions are not um, are not that different, right? I mean, it's not like they're blinded, so they couldn't. You know, they they become indifferent, right? So it's it's not the case. Yeah, it's not the case that they're blind. So what we're extremely interested in finding the genetic uh, underpinnings of, of this this behavior difference because we think this this could be um, a very interesting uh, you know entry point to really understand uh, this type of behaviors in other species as well because if you think about right you know even as human beings right you know we we are all have different level of um, risk aversion as well right so certain individuals are, are extremely exploratory right. Yeah. So like Elon, Elon Musk, for example, wanted to go to you know, <laughs> Mars, right? Extremely exploratory. And there's also individuals who are very risk aversive, right? So, so what determines this type of traits, right? Could we learn something from you know, studying zebrafish, right? It's something that we're, we're very interested in, in finding out. Yeah, yeah. So the, the other thing I was wondering about, Sue, so, uh, is do you find that if you take the ratio so, so you have three buckets, medium, medium dark aversion, strong dark aversion, and variable dark aversion, MDA, mm -hmm. SDA, and BDA mm -hmm. buckets. If you take the ratio of uh, members in those buckets uh, in various, you know, sort of sampling uh, experiments you have done, uh, do you see that ratio to be generally in the generally the same or it's highly variant? In other words, if, if, you, if you take a random sample of 100, you all, almost always see 30 in MDA and 40 in SDA. I'm just making this up and 20 in BDA. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see any sort of stability there in ratios? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so in, in fact, we see a majority right, of the, 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 in the, the population are in the MDA bucket. Okay. So they have like a medial level of a, a dark aversion. Whereas uh, the the extremely dark aversive uh, or the extremely uh, exploratory fishes are are on the smaller percentage side, hmm. so 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 it, it it I think it makes sense. Uh, so I've been thinking about why you know the the fish wanted to have this behavior variation, right? Yeah. So I think it's uh, it's probably programmed evolutionarily. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you think about it, you know these fish living in the wild, right? They could, you know, they could face many different uh, potential environmental conditions, right? Yeah. So, so in certain places, perhaps, um, you know, there'd be a lot of predators, right? Hmm. In which case, the VDA buckets will, will probably be gone, right? Yeah. Be selected, selected against, right? Yeah. Whereas the SDA hopefully will carry the population, right? right. You know, forward. Whereas in, in another type of situation, for example, you know, food scarcity, right? Like in some type of famine yeah. conditions, right? You will think that all the SDA would probably be eliminated, right? Because they're they're too scared to, you know, to, to go out to, to look for food, right? Whereas the VDA, the VDA bucket potentially will carry the population forward, right? Yeah. So so I think having this 
this behavioral variation in the in the population really will allow them to be become you know more resilient um, to to the environmental changes that allow the species to you know to be carried forward. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, so the MDA bucket, um, the the both ends of that spectrum. So you you have sort of a distribution. Both ends of that spectrum has higher risk, and, and mm-hmm. uh, in different contexts, uh, they will they will uh, they're more likely to get eliminated. So, so MDA has the highest membership. Uh, in some sense, you know, you could think about this sort of societal evolution, right? I was thinking about humans. Um, you know, the, the really adventurous types um, of humans, that ratio between very adventurous to, uh, to average, that ratio cannot be too high. Otherwise, you know, we would have been homo sapiens would have been all eaten up by lions and tigers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, but you need to have some percentage of those people. Otherwise, you would have been stuck in Africa forever. Right. So... So there's sort of a, an optimum ratio, it seems to me, between those buckets that make the society evolve optimally. Do you see that that way? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I would imagine so, right, even with Homo sapiens. Yeah. If you think about it, you know, you know the adventurous type, right, will, will, um, will be very, very important, right, in the, in, in the, in the face of uh, um, some type of conflicts, right? Uh, whereas the um, whereas the uh, the sort of yeah, as you mentioned, if we don't have these these uh, adventurous type, we, yeah, we probably you know will not be able to explore the entire <laughs> entire Earth, right? <laughs> yeah, in other words, uh, we need a few Elon Musks, but we don't we don't need too many of them. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's you're right. You know, if we have too many of them. Um, um, potentially, we we would also it will also become a a, a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I um, I don't know cross sectionally. I think that it would be very interesting to see if that ratio is similar a- across you know different animals uh, uh, in different animals, right? Um, and clearly, the threats that you face are very different uh for different animals um and so presumably it's different for different species but my gut tells me that there must there might be some sort of an optimum ratio there that we may be able to find Mm -hmm. yeah so i I think oftentimes you know if we look at uh, any type of behavior right so we we would oftentimes the extreme end right usually usually uh, are represented by smaller individuals smaller percentage of individuals right because simply because you know the sort of the distribution, if you look at a distribution of a behavior, right? So, uh, so majority would be kind of in the middle, right? Yeah. And then and then the extreme ends will, will, will be represented by fewer individuals, but that could change depending on the the environment, right? So if 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 the if if in the like really if we shift the environmental conditions, right, that could potentially favor one end, right, versus the other end, then the population ratio could could evolve dif- very differently yeah exactly uh, it, this is not in the paper but so as you say the as the environment changes that ratio has to change and if it doesn't change you can get extinct um, possibly right yes mm-hmm. and so yeah that's sort of sort of an interesting question from a from an evolutionary perspective you know 
um, so you so you, the 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 distribution that we see today. I mean, they're talking uh, going back to thinking about humans. The distribution that we see today is a function of history, and that may not be ideal, right? Going forward, for for instance, all the domesticated animals. Um, you know, appear to show lower brain size. Uh, they're getting dumber and dumber over time because they don't really have much challenges. They're, they're you know, they're basically depending on humans uh, to get everything done. So they don't really need the distribution they used to have when they were in, in the wild, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a different thing. Um, similarly, humans are, um, you know, changing as well. So I wonder... Well, you know how things would be in the future for humans. That that that's a very interesting question. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I remember there was a movie about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think would be domesticated by machines. In case uh, humans don't uh, have much use for their brains, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know that that's. Um, Hopefully that doesn't happen, right? Uh, but but that that could be a potential um, potential um, danger. Uh, yeah. yeah. So so I guess you know since we're uh, we we believe that you know we want to um, think about right things right. and uh, and uh, uh, doing a lot of intellectual uh, work, right? Yeah. Uh, that that hopefully will keep our brain active. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, not if not sort of uh, re- retract. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's it just speculation, but uh, one could envision situations you can even delegate research so, to machines in the future, um, mm-hmm. which would then uh, <laughs> make humans pretty useless. Uh, so, so in conclusion, Sue, so, you know, I know that you're doing a lot of work in this area. Zebrafish uh, appears to have a lot of very interesting advantages and characteristics uh, to study this. So as so you look forward, you know, five years, um, where else do you think you will take the zebrafish model in terms of understanding? Um, this is really about behaviors, diseases, uh, you know those types of things from a from a brain perspective. Where else do you think you could take it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So, in terms of this behavior that we're studying, this light dark preference behavior, you know, I'm I'm extremely um, interested in in knowing what what are the genetic landscape right that underlines these uh, individual differences in the behavior. So we're taking uh, a variety of uh, molecular, cellular, and genetic approaches to try to find uh, the genes and also the single nucleotide uh, polymorphisms uh, that are present uh, in this population to see, uh, to try to understand which type of uh, genetic changes might underlie these behavior variations that we we have uh, observed. And also, ultimately, we also want to know if these type of genetic variations that we detect in zebrafish will also be, you know, present in other species, uh, mm. including humans, possibly, right? So, so then, then maybe one day we can really understand, uh, you know, the differences uh, between explorers versus, right, like, uh, like uh, caretakers, for example, right? So both of those are very, very, you know, important tasks, but, but we, we don't understand um, 
how they're genetically determined, right? So maybe one day we will be able to understand that. that that's something that, that I would be really thrilled to, um, to, to be able to achieve maybe in five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so sort of the, the genetic and almost like the molecular level, um, understanding what causes it, and, uh, and and if you can understand it, then perhaps you can, you, you, I mean, uh, I'm thinking about diseases now. If, if you can see, show a connection between that to, to, you know, certain diseases, then perhaps there is intervention there, not just chemically, but genetically. Yes, that, that would be one possible um, connection to diseases. So, for example, um, you know, the individuals that we were just talking about, the SDA bucket, right? So yeah. those individuals, we, we, you know, we postulate that they could be, you know, more sensitive to, to environmental stress, yeah. right? So, so if we do, you know, we, we could test this hypothesis by, by apply stressors to, to, you know, SDA bucket versus a VDA bucket and then see, you know, if some type of pathological state can arise, right? Be because anxiety, you know, normal dose of anxiety is essential, right? For, right. for self-protection, but it's the pathological state of anxiety that's not, that's unwanted, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, we could potentially use these different um, buckets of, of individuals to, to test the, 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 the hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, the beauty of the zebrafish model is that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, they are plenty uh, available, mm -hmm. and uh, the brains can be uh, can be really looked at at a, at a very detailed level. So, yeah, it's exciting research. So, um, thanks so Thank much you. for being with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast, providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.